get your Bibles out with me and open them to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Gospel of Mark chapter 10. We're working through this gospel uh, all of this school year, and we're at the 10th chapter. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible, just slip up your hand, and we will get a Bible to you. I want you to see the text, or you can pull out your phone. Uh, all right, Matt, do you mind? One the back. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, we'll get that to you. We're going to pick up where we left off. We're just going passage by passage each week, and if you remember from last week, we skipped over something in chapter 9, but don't worry, next Sunday we're going to come back to that and connect it something here to chapter 10. Where we left off was the first verse of chapter 10. We're going to read it all the way through and then we'll get into it together. So it reads this. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond, and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom. He taught them. And Pharisees came up in, the, in, in order, Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the disciples, they asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's stop there. So you've likely heard verses 6 through 8 quoted uh, in a wedding ceremony. I know I've used uh, those words of Jesus before. And, and the passage, if you notice right there at the top, it's labeled Jesus on divorce or teaching about divorce. But really, the passage is far more about Jesus teaching on marriage, not simply divorce. Now, before we get into it, a passage like this can hit close to home. It can bring up all kinds of different emotions. Some of you are from a divorced home. Others might have gone through uh, a divorce themselves. And so here's what I want to do. I want to look at two other passages in the New Testament briefly that are really important to keep all of this in context. Okay, so we're going to look at two passages and then we're going to come back to what Jesus says specifically here in chapter 10. Okay, the first one is going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So go ahead and turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This first passage is for those who are married to an unbelieving spouse. Married to an unbelieving spouse. What does the scriptures have to say about that situation? So 1 Corinthians 7, this whole chapter is about marriage. We're going to zero in on verse 15. It says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The scriptures are saying if you're married to an unbelieving spouse and they leave you, abandon you, separate from you, so on and so forth, that you're not bound by the biblical text to remain in that marriage is what's being prescribed right here. 
in chapter 7. Okay? So that's one situation that can happen in life. The second passage is for those who are married to someone who is in an, in an adulterous relationship, someone who's having an active affair. Jesus speaks to that as well somewhere else uh, in the Gospels. Go to Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Again, why are we looking at these different passages? Well, it's really important to keep all of the Scriptures in mind when you're touching on an issue, especially one like this. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's a really important exception that Jesus makes in verse 32. He's saying... This is the case except for those who on the ground of sexual immorality end up having a divorce. Jesus is saying if you have a spouse who has committed an affair and you've attempted reconciliation and it's not possible, that you have biblical ground to separate, to move on from that marriage. So it's really important to keep all of that in mind as we look at what Jesus has to say in Mark chapter 10. So flip back there to Mark chapter 10. If we were in Matthew, I'd spend more time on that particular idea of Scripture or if we're in 1 Corinthians. But I just want to bring that in as we look at what it says here. So we'll take this in parts. Let's pick up in verse 2 of chapter 10. And Pharisees came up and in order to test Jesus asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answered them, What did Moses command they said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Let's stop there. Let's notice two things here. So keep your eyes on the text. Twice they speak, the Pharisees talk about what is lawful or what is allowed. That's verse 2 and verse 4. They're looking for a loophole. They're looking for any way to keep up with this right to do what they want with their spouse. And in this culture at this time, men were the only ones that divorced women. It was rare. There were some exceptions, but typically it was the male that divorced uh, the wife. And they're asking for, is it lawful? Is it okay? Is it allowed? They're looking for grounds to continue in any kind of way that they want. But notice the second thing. Jesus, on the other hand, speaks twice about what is commanded. You see that in verse 3 and in verse 5. So what's the difference? They're interested in what's allowed. Jesus is very much interested in what is God's will. They only care about their own rights, what they can get by with, any loopholes. Right? They're testing him is what it says in verse 2. And Jesus is interested in what's God's actual will? What's his heart here? Now, what you need to know is the Pharisees are quoting from the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 24, okay, in the Torah. Deuteronomy 24 is where they're pulling out this questioning and this testing. And Jesus makes the point that the reason that the law the reason for that law is not because it's God's will for marriage to end in divorce, but it's because of man's sinfulness. Deuteronomy 24 was a text of concession, not of intention. It's really, really important. God's intention is lifelong fidelity for a couple. But this law was ultimately put in place to protect the women who were involved. 
Because in that culture, at that time, women, there was two different schools. There was the Hillel school of rabbis, and then there was the, I can't remember the other name, of school of rabbi, rabbinical thought. One was saying, hey, for any reason, at, you know, at any time, I mean, it even said crazy things like if, if the, the dinner wasn't made in a certain way. I mean, it, it was serious uh, oppression of women. He said, you can divorce your wife. And there's this other school of thought that was more in line with the biblical thought that said, hey, only on the grounds of sexual immorality, of infidelity, right? But here, right in the middle is Deuteronomy 24, and it's this text that is realistic that this will happen. People are sinful, but we need to protect the women who are involved in this because women typically were the ones who caught the bad end of the deal. If the woman was not in the wrong here and her husband simply just divorced her, Deuteronomy 24 was there to protect her. And so it's not a pretext for divorce, but it's an attempt to limit its worst consequences for women. And Jesus knows this. Pharisees, again, looking for loopholes. Jesus, what he's really after is God's will. And so we ask the question, what is God's original will for marriage? And this is why Jesus, right here in this conversation, he goes back to the beginning of the Bible. Take a look. Chapter 6, verse 6. Again, this is just a kind of a clue into how Jesus thought. Jesus had just come up with things. Jesus' thought was anchored in Scripture. The Scriptures is what totally informed his whole worldview, the way he looked at marriage, the way he looked at this, the way he looked at that. And so he goes back to the Bible. Verse 6, Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So he's literally quoting from Genesis. And the two shall become one flesh. So they no longer two, but they are one. So what does this mean? It means marriage is a lifelong one flesh union between a husband and a wife. Divorce is therefore outside of God's perfect will. What he wants ultimately to happen. Now Jesus also knows that there is sinfulness. This is why he says what he says in Matthew 5, unless on the grounds of sexual immorality, because he knows that happens in a marriage. There's infidelity. There's abuse. There's an unbelieving spouse leaving the other, right? And so, he's, so the, the scriptures are aware of that. But Jesus doesn't shy away from God's original will that he quotes right here. A, a, a lifelong union of two becoming one. Now I want to pause here. And I want to show you something in Jesus' words that I think are often not noticed. People argue that Jesus has nothing to say about two contemporary issues, homosexuality and transgenderism. That Jesus just doesn't talk about those things. That those things didn't exist in Jesus' day, therefore he didn't talk about it. That's simply untrue. It did exist in Jesus' day. Not transgenderism in the way that we think of it today, but, but in a, a certain more primitive form, and certainly homosexuality was a very real reality in the Greco-Roman world that Jesus lived in. And so people say, well, Jesus never spoke on it. But that's just not true. What you find here is that Jesus goes back to the Bible to ground his sexual ethic and says two things in particular by quoting Genesis. Here's the first. Take a look back at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. First thing that you see here is that Jesus believes God made every person, with exception to a couple outliers, male and female at birth. What does that mean? It means we don't make ourselves. It says God made them. 
that we don't get to choose. It's been chosen for us by a loving God before we were born, whether we be male or female. It means that gender is not a fluid reality. It is a fixed one, according to God, according to Jesus, according to Scripture. And I think that's massively important. You might get yourself caught in an argument with someone who says, well, Jesus never talked about that. He never addressed the issue. It's simply not true. He goes back to the Bible, goes back to Jesus, to God's original creation and says, hey, it's very clear. God made them, period, male and female. It's a fixed reality that God gives every human person. Now, while saying that, I also want to say this. Those that are struggling with their masculinity or their femininity, that's a hard word to say, femininity, I think I got it there. They need to seek out support and help. I'm all for that. This church is all for that. I have been in many conversations with those who are struggling with some of those issues, and we've helped and supported as best we could many of those and connected them to different counselors and so on and so forth. I can tell you how many times over the last decade I've sent emails out to parents or to students or to adults who wanted counseling support, and we've connected them to those resources. And so we need to be supportive of someone who is struggling with that. But at the same time, we cannot deny what is true of the scriptures, that God made them male and female. We don't make ourselves. Second thing you can notice in what Jesus is saying here is that marriage is exclusively between a man and a woman. He says Right there, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And if you remember that creation story, it's God bringing the man, his wife. It's God bringing a union between male and female, husband and wife, wife to be lifelong, one flesh, together. And so, from the beginning, this is how God has set it up. A heterosexual marriage. God knows what God is doing and has created marriage for human flourishing. God's not trying to take something from us as humanity. He's trying to give something to us. God knows that the the greatest potential for human flourishing in a family is between a man and a woman. And so Jesus says since the beginning, God has set it up this exact way. And so... It's really clear. Jesus does address these issues um, right here in the text. Now, here's what I want to tell you. If you want more on this subject of biblical sexuality, go back to our 1 Corinthians series. I spent a whole Sunday talking about God and biblical sexuality. We really go deeper into those that are struggling with same-sex attraction and how the church should respond to that and what the scriptures say about that. And so... Just Spotify or podcast, whatever. Just go back, 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 6, and you'll find a talk uh, labeled God and Sexuality. And uh, I think there's some helpful resources there. So let's keep moving. Look at how Jesus ends what he's talking about. Verse 9, he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Really important, what God has joined together. Meaning God has made it this way. So don't, don't mess with it. Don't separate it. Uh, don't tweak it or tinker with it. Right? God has made it this way, but the reality is man has been trying to separate this order for a very, very long time. Whether it's with ungrounded divorce, one that's not 
rooted in infidelity, whether it's homosexual relationships, whether it's transgenderism, all those different things that are real struggles that we go through, what can happen, and this doesn't just happen on these issues, this happens with all sinfulness in all of our lives, is we like to tinker and tweak with what the Word says to justify our feelings, our desires, and our actions. I do it just as much as you do it. It's not simply on these issues of sexuality. It's on all issues. Today what we're talking about is these particular ones, and it's clear. It says in verse 9, God has joined this together. Therefore, humans have no right to rip it up and tear it apart. God is the Lord of marriage, not us. That's what Jesus is saying. Again, these Pharisees, they're trying to find a loophole. They're trying to find a way to create it in their own ideas and their own image, right? And he ends by saying, what God has brought together, his order, don't mess with it. He's the Lord of marriage. Now, the reality is, we see this happening in a lot of places, separating the order that God's created both outside the church and inside the church. Just, the, just these past few weeks, the Church of England, the Anglican Church, I don't know if you're aware of this, but they've been voting in favor of so-called same-sex marriage. They've been going totally against what the scriptures say and talking about blessing same-sex unions, not performing the union inside the church, but taking a step closer towards that by saying we're going to officially bless same-sex unions. It's been a huge uproar and debate uh, in the UK. Here at home, the Methodist denomination is in many ways being torn apart by this very issue. Just ask any of your friends that are Methodists. They're tearing apart what God has joined together, verse 9, and because of it, in many ways, they're being torn and pulled apart themselves. They're going through a massive upheaval in that denomination right now. Here's what I believe. I believe the culture out here is not looking for something that they can already find in the world. I don't think they're looking for something that looks like them. When someone is searching and interested in the things of God, I don't think they're looking for the same thing they can find out in the world to find it here in the church. I think they're looking for something different, something ancient, something sound, something that's transcendent and bigger than passing trends and passing feelings. Every different generation and culture defines happiness in a different way. Every generation and culture defines this, that, in all kinds of different ways. I don't trust culture in the least bit. Is culture a thing of God? Yes, but it's a fallen culture. And you go across every different continent and, and, and time period, everyone had a different idea on truth. And this is why so much of my conviction for the scriptures go back to this is the one thing that is transcendent, that's rooted in God, that's timeless, that has endured all kinds of scrutiny. Why would I base my life on what some fallen sinful person has said is true when I can base it on what God has said is, is true through the biblical story? And yet it's so tempting because we don't want to be we don't want to be offensive or we don't want to be out of touch. And so there's this temptation to go with the cultural milieu and to go with whatever is being said now on this issue or that issue. But it's schizophrenic. It changes every other generation. How about I, I? Let's just pause. I can change my mind in like five minutes. I could want this thing, and then two minutes later, I want that thing. I can be happy one moment. I can be sad the next. Isn't this how we are as humans? I mean, we're constantly in flux. 
And so for us to base our whole life, our, our eternity, our, our worldview on fallen men and women, it's just, it's just ludicrous. It's just, it's just not a good bet. I'd rather root it in something that's transcendent, something that comes from God. And trust me, again, you, many of you know, I mean, in, in my undergrad, I, I studied philosophy, and I've, I've heard all the different major arguments and, and counter-narratives and all those different things. And in, I've studied theology, and I've, I've heard from the, the liberal to the conservative to the, uh, this, that, and, and everything in between. At the end of the day, it's not about conservative Christianity or liberal Christianity. It's about biblical Christianity. That's what matters. <laughs> and today, there's a lot of people holding up the Bible in churches and they claim that they're preaching scripture, the, the, the Christianity of the Bible. But in reality, they're just taking one verse and they're spinning it off into whatever they really want to talk about. And you're not getting the real thing. I don't want to get on soapbox. But, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm just not fascinated by anything that isn't rooted in the text. It's fallen man trying to be spiritual and make God's word better than what they think it already is. There's just no point in that. I believe Jesus and the anointed apostles and the prophets of old, and Moses and the forefathers, I believe they were anointed by God to bring us the tradition. And so you only get one life, and I'm going to root it here and pray for anyone that doesn't. All right, amen. That's another sign. So what was I saying? Yes, the culture. They're not looking for something they can already find out in themselves. They're looking for something different. And what they want, I believe, is a profound mystery that they can be in awe of, not just some new technology or new device or new podcast. I mean, let's be real. That stuff gets old after a while. I'm so sick of how rapid the change, the acceleration of our culture. Does anyone else feel that way? I mean, it's just like we're being pulled in this one direction. It feels like we have no control of so fast this GPT chat stuff. Has anyone tried that? I'm, on, I'm back on the soapbox. Just, just deal with it. Anyone tried that out yet? I mean, it's crazy technology. And things change and change and change and change. And I think our culture is weary of how rapid all the changes are happening. I think they want to go back and say, give me something solid and ancient that doesn't change. Give me something I can root my life in that won't change a week from now. I think that's what people want. And I think that's what the scriptures offer. This is what the Bible says the, a marriage should be. It says it's supposed to be a profound mystery in Ephesians. A profound mystery. Rooted not just in five love languages and a feeling, but rooted in something far deeper. Rooted in God. Let me show it to you. This, this is the passage we'll end on. Go to Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5. This is where the New Testament really zooms in and speaks to the marriage relationship in a little bit of detail. And so we'll end here. We'll take it in about three parts. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. 
and as himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Stop there. Now what does this mean? There's some modern preachers today that would never even, I mean, I didn't have to go to Ephesians 5. I could have, I could have ignored that. Because the, the language of submission and so on is, what does that really mean? Well, here's what it means in general. It means that God has an order to things. There's an order. Look around us. All around us. I mean, these trees and how they're blooming right now in the spring and how the rain is falling, providing water and so on and so forth. There's divine order everywhere we look. Right? God has an order to things so that they flourish well. Disorder or chaos. You ever been around a we started T-ball. I was telling my brother, we started T-ball. That, that, that was not orderful at all. <laughs> Total chaos. I remember T-ball like being decently ordered where I played. This, this was just, they didn't have positions. They just all stood by the mound and they all ran after the ball. And every kid got to bat and everyone gets a trophy. And you know, I'm not getting another soapbox. But I mean, it was just no order. Where there's disorder, there's chaos. And there isn't flourishing. God has an order. And God's designed an order for the family as well. And you see it here. Now, let's, let, let's, let's knock down a few uh, uh, misnomers. To be the head of a family does not mean you're the dictator. doesn't mean you're the prime minister or the president. And it certainly doesn't mean you're God. Christ is God, not you. The husband here with the description is that he's supposed to be a self-sacrificial leader in his family. Self-sacrificial is the key word because it compares it to Christ, who was the ultimate self-sacrifice. Okay? Now, this doesn't mean that the wife doesn't lead as well in different capacities. Of course she does. There's a mutual leadership happening in the family when it's done right. But the husband, it says here, is supposed to be a self-sacrificial initiator like Christ is. And those that have been brought up in a biblical family, not perfect, no one's perfect, but a biblical family seeing their dad be that self-sacrificial initiator, you've seen a beautiful thing. If the husband is acting in sin and not Christ-likeness, he's not to be followed. It's not saying, hey, always submit to your husband no matter what. No. It's comparing him to Christ. When that Christ-likeness is being exuded out of the character of his life, that's someone good to follow and to join in leadership with. Let's go on. Again, I've preached on this. I don't know if we still have it on the podcast, but I've done Ephesians 5. If you want more, you can go to that. Um, on our website. Let's go to the second part of this. It says, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This is where it gets interesting. He who loves his wife actually loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This is where the profound mystery comes into play. He's going to say that in the very next verse. It's now saying that our human marriage is like Christ's marriage to the church. So now it's getting rooted or lifted up and elevated into something transcendent. Marriage is mirroring God's loving relationship with humanity, with the church. And so just like 
we are one with Christ's body, right? It says we're members of his body. So we're one with Christ's body, which is its own mysterious thing. It says that the marriage partners, husband and wife, are one with each other. They're one flesh in some kind of mysterious, godly way. And he's saying, don't you take care of your own body? Which my response to that is like, well, some of the times I actually need to do better. But yes, in general, yes. I want good for myself, right? He's saying, the reality of a Christian marriage is that you don't want to mistreat your spouse because you want to take care of them because in some kind of profound way you'd be mistreating yourself. You're one reality under God. And so as you care for yourself and as you care for your spouse, you're caring for each other as one. It's a profound mystery. It's already getting far deeper than just five love languages and some personality tests, right? I mean, this is something in God. Last part, verse 31. Therefore, a man, right here, again, Paul, good Bible scholar, just like Jesus, goes back to the text. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, it says. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. What do we take from this? The point that's being made here is that the way we love each other displays to the world the way God loves us. The way we love each other in our marriage is not perfectly, but is by Christ's strength, it displays to the world the way God loves the church. And so what does that mean? It means our marriages are much bigger than ourselves. They are a signpost to Christ's love for us. And so to quote Jesus back in Mark 10, what God has joined together in his divine wisdom, let us not separate. What does this mean for us? We need to pray for our marriages in the church. We need to ask each other about each other's marriages. How's it going? What's going on? Build a kind of friendship here where you can do that. Hey, how's it going between you and, you know, I'm not going to say names, but how's it going in your marriage? Right? And they can ask you back the same question. We need to help those that are going through divorce. Those that have suffered infidelity uh, from their spouse. We need to help those and comfort those and walk with those people. We need to pray for our children's future spouses. That's one prayer I pray every single night. Every night. Some of you uh, that have children that are married, I mean, you know how important that is. I pray for my children to come to know the Lord, to be born again at a young age and follow them all their life. And then I, right there I say, I pray the same for their spouses and the same for their children to the very last generation. Same for every night. Pray for our children's future spouses. We need to counsel those that are about to get married and those that are in their first year or years of marriage because this thing is so massively important. We need to support those that are unmarried. We need to follow God in all of this because here's why. I believe that as goes the family, so goes the world. Right? As goes the the family unit and how it's cared for and guided in a biblical way, that determines how our world goes. If you want to get a a temperature on where the future of our world is going to be a generation or two from now, just look at marriage. Just look at the family unit. And if that is strong and there's strength there given by God, 
Let's just talk inside the church. You want to talk about the future of the church a generation or two from now. Look at the marriages. The family unit is the most important thing we've got in God's design. He's created to be the center of his human project. And so we need to follow God's design for it happily. Because in God's design is great flourishing, not only for us, but for the kingdom. Amen? All right. I'm done.